It's not, well, if you just sang happy birthday to Jesus a little bit louder, then that would really help. No, we have nothing to impress God with. You're listening to a special message preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, or to learn more about Jesus, visit thisisshoreline.com. All right, well, today we have the privilege to study God's Word this morning. Pastor Pilgrim is away in Seattle, uh, teaching at another church there, and so he'll be back this week. You can be lifting him up in his travels. But we do have a privilege to study, and I want to stress that this morning, what a gift we have, that we hold the very Word of God in our hands. Uh, In this season of gift-giving, there's going to be many gifts given, but we must take notice of the gift of God's inerrant Word. Because today, without any effort, with just a swipe of our finger, we can pull up the Bible in multiple versions, in multiple languages, and we often forget the sacrifices that men like William Tyndale and John Wycliffe underwent in order to see God's word translated into the common tongue, their common tongue in English. They gave their lives for that, and yet we treat God's word often very casually often not even reading it, and yet we carry it around in our pockets all day. But his word has authority in our lives. His word has authority for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. His word is sufficient, meaning that we have everything that we need for life and godliness. It's found in those pages. His word is active, it's powerful, it's living, it's nourishing, and it's sanctifying. So, as gifts are given this season, may we not forget the gift we have of God's word. And may he direct our lives as we continue in our Advent series today. And as we turn to the book of Luke and once again continue there, let's pray once again. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the privilege to sit under your word, under your teaching this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would work in our hearts and minds, that you would illuminate this truth to us. You would open our ears to hear, our hearts to receive it, our minds to understand. I ask that you would protect me from speaking any air, and it would be clear to all those here this morning. Please do a work, Holy Spirit, that only you can do in our lives. Change us because of your word. Draw us to obedience because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this month we're studying Luke 1 and 2, and we are seeing different responses to how those in this story responded to the birth of Jesus. How did they repeat the sounding joy? And last Sunday we began with Gabriel and Mary, and we saw the important point that the gospel must be believed and received. We saw that Zechariah was exposed to the good news. He heard it. He was familiar with what the angel had said. But rather than believing, he scoffed. And ironically, his ability to speak, to spread the news, was taken from him for a time. But Mary, 
On the contrary, even though they asked similar questions, her heart was one of a believing heart. And she said, let it be to me according to your word. Well, today we're going to continue in chapter and go further into Mary's response, as well as hearing from Elizabeth and briefly from John the Baptist as well. And in our passage today, we're going to see that God is the source. We're going to see it in three different ways. We're going to see that God is the source of blessing in the first six verses. Then we're going to see that God is the source of our worship in the bulk of our text today. And then finally, we'll leave understanding that God is the source of our salvation. So as we come to verses 39 and 40, as we pick up the story, we see Mary Mary quickly heading to go visit Elizabeth. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And this was no doubt, of course, in response to what the angel Gabriel had told her, saying, it's not only you, Mary, also Elizabeth. God has chosen to work miraculously through her as well. And we can appreciate Mary's excitement and her desire to go share the news. Why? Well, because they had two very miraculous things in common. Gabriel had come to both of their families. And keep in mind, in doing so, God was breaking his silence. It had been about 400 years since there had been any messages, any angel visits from the Lord. No miracles. And secondly, they both had miraculous conceptions. Of course, Elizabeth, in that she was too old to conceive, and Mary, in that she was a virgin. So in the next couple of verses, we're going to hear from Elizabeth. And up until this point, with the exception of one thankful response in verse 25, we have mainly heard the story from Zechariah's point of view. But first, in verse 41, we catch a glimpse of John the Baptist's future ministry. Look at verse 41. When Elizabeth had heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And this was foretold from verse 15. If you look back at verse 15, this is what it says. It says, For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. This was foretold and came to pass in this verse. Even before his birth, John the Baptist rejoiced in Jesus, just like he did for his earthly ministry. And as the verse ends, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and gives her voice to what John was trying to communicate by bouncing around in there. Before we look at her words, though, I just want to take just a moment, a sidestep, just veer off for a moment and look at this phrase, Filled with the Holy Spirit. That's an important phrase. And we see it three times in this passage. We see it in reference to John the Baptist. We see it in reference to Elizabeth. And we're going to see it again in reference to Zechariah in verse 67. And there's a common question that pops up when we're discussing and studying the work of the Holy Spirit. And it goes something like this. If the Holy Spirit wasn't sent to indwell believers until the church was born on the day of Pentecost, how did the Spirit work in the Old Testament? Very good question. Well, first we must note that our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. So in most aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit, it's very similar. It's the same. And as we look at the study of pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit, we can see four general areas in which the Holy Spirit works. First, in regeneration. The Holy Spirit opens our minds 
and eyes to see and to understand and to come to the Lord. Secondly, in his indwelling and how he fills and indwells us. Thirdly, in the restraint of sin, both in our own lives and even in this world. And then fourthly, he empowers us for service, to serve the Lord and to serve the church. And evidence of these areas of the work of the Holy Spirit are just as present in the Old Testament as they are in the New Testament. And we don't have time to dive into all of these, of course, but if you would like, I can send you some Old Testament and New Testament references later. The major difference between the spirit roles, between the Old and New Testament, and that word role is an important word because, once again, he does not change, but his role is expanded, in a sense, as we come into the church. The New New Testament teaches that the Holy Spirit permanently indwells believers. We see that in 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6. When we place our faith in Christ for salvation, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. And the Apostle Paul calls this permanent indwelling the guarantee of our inheritance in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. But in the Old Testament, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was selective and temporary. And we see several instances where the Spirit came upon, and that's the words used in the Old Testament, came upon such Old Testament people as Joshua in Numbers 27, David in 1 Samuel 16, and even Saul in 1 Samuel 10. In the book of Judges, we see the Holy Spirit coming upon the various judges whom God raised up to rescue and deliver Israel from their oppressors. And the Holy Spirit came upon these individuals for a specific task. And the indwelling was a a sign of God's favor for that individual. And if God's favor left an an, an individual, the Holy Spirit would depart. And we see that, for example, in Saul's case in 1 Samuel 16. And finally, the Spirit coming upon an individual did not always indicate that person's spiritual condition. And you can see it again with the story of Saul. You can also see it with Samson and some of the other judges that so clearly lived in a life of sin. And in fact, there's a big question that's gone around that we don't know quite the answer to for sure. But the question is, was King Saul a believer? Was he saved? There are many theologians who do not think that he was. So while in the New Testament, the Spirit only indwells believers and it's permanent, The Spirit came upon certain Old Testament individuals for a specific task, regardless of their spiritual condition. And once the task was completed, the Spirit seemingly departed from that person. Of course, I would encourage you to take some time and study this out. It's a large study, more than we can take on here. But I think this gives us some insight into what is happening in our passage here as we look at Elizabeth and Zechariah and John the Baptist. But back to our text in verse 42. Let's look at that. We Here we see Elizabeth giving out her blessings. It says, And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And so in these verses, we see that God is the source of blessing. And these miraculous works came on only because of a work of God. And the joy that we see here in Elizabeth's life, the joy that comes from this, can only be attributed back to him. 
In verse 42, Elizabeth blesses Mary for what the Lord has done and also for the fruit of her womb. And that harkens back to Psalm 127.3, which says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord and the fruit of the womb a reward. And she continues in verse 43, and, and you can even catch just a little bit of the wonder in her voice when she says, why, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? In doing so, she highlights the importance of this birth. This is the Lord you are giving birth to, Jesus, the second member of the Trinity. And Elizabeth then tells Mary what had happened when she had heard her greeting, that John the Baptist leaped for joy. Now, this didn't just coincidentally happen because babies move around in the womb from time to time. No, this is a work of the Holy Spirit confirming the work of our triune God. This is the Holy Spirit working in this situation to confirm what is happening. And Elizabeth also praises Mary for her belief in verse 45. She says, you trusted the Lord and you had faith that what was told to you would come to pass. And many years later, Jesus would utter similar words to Thomas in John 20, 29. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Blessed are those who believe. And so as we come to the end of this first point, there are two important observations that we need to make as we draw out the meaning of the text. First, compare Elizabeth's response to her husband, Zechariah's. How does Zechariah respond? We learned this last week. He basically said, are you kidding me? This is impossible. I'm an old man, and my wife is too old to bear children. He doubted, and in his unbelief, he was punished because of that. In fact, as we are reading now, at the point in this story, Zechariah is still mute. So there's a contrast here. While Elizabeth is rejoicing at the miracle in her own womb and praising God for what has happened to Mary, praising her for her belief, her own husband is suffering the consequences of his unbelief. And the second thing, we can't leave this section without drawing out this important truth about life in the womb. And this passage makes it clear that in some way, babies in the womb respond to both what happens inside and outside of the mother's belly. The location of the baby does not play a factor on whether it is human or not. At the moment of conception, there is new life that is an image bearer of God and deserves the dignity, worth, and care that we would show them when they are born. Christopher Ash in the devotional that you can't get anymore, at least here, but he references this in page 61. He says, this certainly says something to us about the real and human life of precious babies in the womb. They don't become human at birth. They can, in ways we can only discern in shadowy form, think and feel, hope and fear, delight and grieve. And who dares to put a start date on the genesis of that real humanness, unless it be the moment of conception? This vivid baby-in-the-womb drama certainly makes us wonder at the mystery of every other baby growing so secretly in the mother's womb. Here is a life to be nurtured and treasured and guarded and prayed for. 
It's worth asking ourselves if there are ways in which we too can help others to nurture and treasure an unborn life in a world that sometimes holds them cheap. Good words. Well, from here, we jump into our second point, that God is the source of our worship. And so in response to everything that God has done, everything that has happened to Mary, Mary launches in to this poetic worship for who the Lord is and what he has done. And anytime we come across a song in the Bible, a poem of praise, we need to take notice because the songs in the Bible give us language for our own worship. And thankfully, we have a whole book of songs that has been given to us. And we'll see that Mary draws from the Psalms as well as other songs and other truths about who God is in the Old Testament. And here at church, we often mention the importance of the five solas of the Reformation and how foundational they are to our faith. As we look at sola scriptura, scripture alone, meaning that God's word is the final authority, and also that God's word is totally sufficient for everything we need. If we believe this, then we must apply it to how we worship, what we include on our gatherings, in our gatherings on Sundays, and even in how we choose the songs that we sing. God has been very clear on how we are to worship him. He was clear with the Israelites in the Old Testament, and he's also very clear to us in the church, in the New Covenant. The songs of the Bible communicate who God is and what he has done. Objective truth about him. And all songs that are written for the church today for corporate worship must be written from this perspective as well. Anytime we get into subjective nature of things, feelings, based on feelings, not that that's wrong. Of course, the Lord has given us our feelings. We are to express those. But anytime we get away from the objective truth of God's word, we can get into trouble. Well, your Bibles may have a heading in this section calling the song the Magnificat. And that comes from the Latin word meaning to magnify, hence the first line in verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord. And so with the overarching thought that God is the source of our worship, we can break this down into a couple subpoints as well. Mary's song into these three points. First, we're going to see God's blessing to Mary in verses 46 through 49, then God's blessing to all believers, to all who fear him in the following verses, and finally, God's blessing to Israel as she ends her song. So Mary begins with personal praise to the Lord. Look at how she begins. Verse 46, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Her soul magnifies, her spirit Rejoices, And so these opening lines show us that true worship is internal. This worship comes from a place that is deep down within her. It's deeper than just words coming out of her mouth. It came from her inner person. You could say her whole being, her mind, her will, and her emotion. All of her came together and praised the Lord. And worship begins with our attitude. And it should come from our heart. Uh, external, shallow, superficial worship that just comes out of our mouth out of tradition or because we want to put on a good show for others around us, that's unacceptable. Uh, God rejects this kind of shallow worship. It's very clear. In Isaiah 29, God said, The people draw near to me with their mouth, and with their lips they honor me, but their heart is far away from me. 
So true worship comes from an adoring heart, from a deep down profound gratitude toward the Lord for all he does. And we can see this come through in the heart of Mary. She shows us that true worship is internal, but it's not only that, it's also habitual. In verse 46 and 47, we have two present tense verbs. A present tense verb implies a continuous action, something that goes on and on uninterrupted. And those two words are magnifies and rejoices. And so this teaches us that throughout the ebb and flow of our life, our worship should go on uninterrupted. Circumstances in our life should have no effect on that. Why? Because no matter what happens in our life, God does not change. Our circumstances don't change God. They don't change who he is. They don't change his word. They don't change his purposes. They don't change his promises. And in response, this means that our responsibility to worship him does not change. And that's why Paul can say, in everything, give what? Thanks. In everything, give thanks. Paul learned to be content in every situation. If he had much, if he had little. In fact, in Romans 14.8, he says, If I live, I live for the Lord. If I die, I die unto the Lord. Whether I live or die, I'm the Lord's. Nothing ever changed that. It was unwavering. And that's the way our life should be. We can worship the Lord, of course, as we know in every moment. We've been learning that even recently as we were in Romans 12. Friends, you know this. If worship only happens on Sunday, that is not worship. That is religion. We can't compartmentalize it and say, okay, now I'm in this building here on Lena Road, so I'm going to worship. No. It's an everyday, all throughout our life attitude. There's so much to see just in these two verses, but how did God work through her? Verse 48 and 49 tell us. Look there. It says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Holy is his name. God had chosen Mary to raise the Messiah. That's how he worked through here. Look at her response. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. The mighty one has done great things for me. And what's her response? Her response is to say, holy is his name. That's what she has to go back to. She's saying, Lord, you are set apart. I am nothing like you. I don't, I don't understand why you would choose me. I'm a nobody. And so I have to praise you for your holiness. And in doing so, her response echoes so many, as we see in God's word, from Moses to Isaiah to David to Paul to John. When faced with the awesome nature of who God is and what he does, the response is, holy are you, Lord. There's a couple other things in these verses that we need to, import, that we need to mention as well. Like we said earlier, God's word gives us the language for our worship. And Mary makes full use of this. Just look. Uh, verse 46, it echoes Psalm 34.2. Verse 47 echoes Isaiah 45.21. Verse 48 references Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 1.11. Verse 48 also refers to the words of Leah in Genesis 30.13. Verse 49 echoes Psalm 126.3 and Psalm 119.9. All those verses, what does that tell us? Mary knows her Bible. Mary knows the Old Testament. And that gives us some great insight because how can we worship the Lord if we do not know him? If we do not know 
God's word. We cannot worship the Lord properly if we don't know who he is. We, we can't. Bob Coughlin, he wrote, uh, he's written two very good books on worship. The first one is called Worship Matters. It's primarily written for music teams. But the second book is called True Worshipers, and he wrote that for the entire church. And he said something that has stuck with me all these years since I read that book many years ago. He said, in reference to worship teams, he says, worship teams must know their Bibles better than they know their instruments. It's so simple, and yet it's so true, because often we get it reversed. We put a lot of emphasis on the production. We put a lot of emphasis on the talent of those who are singing and playing. A lot of emphasis on the instruments. But that's got it backwards. It's got it backwards, and that's where we get into problems when we reverse those things. No, we must know our Bibles better than we know our instruments. doesn't mean that we just let anybody play and sing. Of course not. We want to have excellence in what we do, but we don't mix. We don't get it out of order. But you can apply it. You can fill in the blank any way that you would like. Do you know God's word better than you know your pastime, better than you know your job? You can fill in that blank, I'm sure. It's very important. It also plays out practically with how we interact with people, with fellow members in, in God's family? How do we interact with people when we're trying to encourage them to, through a struggle, through a trial, through sin? If we know our Bibles well, we will not have to resort to the same cliche statements that we always say or that the, even the world says. We can do so much better. Well, the second important item to mention is also in verse 48. Mary says, because of what you have done, Lord, all generations will call me blessed. And notice that she doesn't say, I will bless all generations. Mary's worship is pointed in the right direction, and so should ours. This may seem pretty basic, but it's important to point out when millions upon millions of people sit Mary right next to Jesus. And we saw this very much when we lived in Russia and in Siberia with the Russian Orthodox Church. Very much. Look at the icons, the veneration, the worship of Mary. The pictures always have Mary as this towering, loving individual. Jesus is always a baby. Mary is always larger than Jesus in those paintings. It's very important. Mary is saying here that all generations will say, I am blessed because of what I have received from the Lord. Mary does not give out blessing. She does not give out grace. It's the opposite. She magnifies the Lord. She rejoices in God, her Savior. She says, he who is mighty has done great things for me. It's all about her worshiping the Lord. And so we see here, this passage shoots down the idea that any kind of veneration or worship should be directed toward Mary. Mary does not bring praise upon herself. Instead, she gives us a great example of how we are to worship God. And it's really ironic that the church would elevate and make Mary the object of adoration and worship because nothing in Scripture supports that, not even close. In fact, even in Jesus' time, this, this just came in a little tiny bit. Luke 11, verse 27 and 28 says this, As he, Jesus, said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to them, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So he doesn't shut the lady down. Mary, of course, was very blessed. 
in amazing ways, but he redirects to where the focus should be. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, said this, while the scribes and Pharisees despised and blasphemed the discourses of our Lord Jesus, this good woman admired them and the wisdom and power with which he spoke. Christ led the woman to a higher consideration. Though it is a great privilege to hear the word of God, yet those only are truly blessed. That is, blessed of the Lord that hear it, keep it in memory, and keep to it as their way in rule. Mary doesn't hear any prayers. She does not forgive sin. She is not a co-mediator with Jesus. There is one mediator. It's the opposite. She shows us how to worship the only one that can forgive sin and the only one that is worthy to be worshipped. We must move on to verse 50 and following. Look there. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. And so here we see Mary transitioning from praising God for, for her personal praise to praising God for how he has blessed all believers, all those who would fear him. Again, it's praising God for who he is and what he has done. So who is he? Well, according to these verses, he is merciful, he is righteous, he is generous, he is a provider. What has he done? Mary knows how God worked in the Old Testament. She says he showed his mighty arm, and we see this in how God helped the Israelites conquer those in the promised land. In fact, Psalm 89, verses 10 and 13, which was specifically written to praise God for what he had done with the Israelites. It's, it uses that same phrase. It says, you scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. He took down rulers. He scattered the proud. And of course, we see this. How did he scatter the proud? Famous example would be the Tower of Babel in the very beginning. He scattered, changed their languages, sent them throughout the earth. As far as bringing down rulers, probably one of the best examples would be King Nebuchadnezzar. You remember his story? He thought he was the best on the entire planet, very prideful. And so what did God do? God turned him into a human cow, eating grass on all fours. He went insane for a period of time. But he did come to his sentences, uh, not sentences, senses, and listen to what he says after the Lord had restored his sanity. He says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And he spoke that from very, very personal experience. God exalts the humble. It says he filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich home empty. Not only did God do this in the past, but he continues to do this today. Those who are hungry, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. All over scripture, we see that God lifts up the humble, but destroys and brings low the proud. Uh, with our kids, we've been studying a couple of messianic psalms during this season, and we just finished studying Psalm 72, at which we read a portion of that as we started the service. But I wanted to read you a couple of those verses again. Psalm 72, speak to this. And this psalm is looking forward 
to Jesus's eternal kingdom. He has dominion from sea to sea, it says. But in verse 12, it says, for he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From the oppression from oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. So not only does this apply to compassion that Jesus showed for those who were poor, those who are sick, but it's much deeper than that. Because the truth is that all of us are poor and needy. All of us have no helper and we desperately need Jesus to save us. Thank the Lord that he has. But what we learn from this is only the humble can worship. Only the humble can worship. Proud people cannot worship because they are too busy worshiping themselves. And God knew that we as a human race, that we would struggle with this. We do. And so he set us in our place from the very beginning, the very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Because the God that wants the place on the throne is our human heart. Our prideful heart is us. It's always competing for that. True worship only comes from a humble heart. James 4, 6 says that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pride stands in the way of true worship. John MacArthur defines pride like this. He says, pride is the worship of self. Proud people can't be thankful because they never get what they think they deserve, no matter what they get. Proud people can't be thankful because they constantly remember all the wrongs done to them. Proud people can't be true worshipers of God because they want to strike back at everybody who offends them, so they've got a bitter edge. Proud people find it very difficult to be filled with praise because they constantly reflect on how they've been mistreated. I'm sure that describes all of us at a certain time in our lives. It's true words. And in fact, if the Lord is convicting you this morning, I encourage you to come in repentance before we come to the table in a little bit. But a true worshiper, a true worshiper is selfless because Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit means to realize that you're bankrupt. Blessed are the meek or the humble. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's the meek and humble who worship. But we have the last two verses here in Mary's song to consider. We've seen God's blessings to Mary, God's blessings to all believers, and finally, God's blessings to Israel. Look at verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. So once again, Mary knew how God, through history, had been faithful to Israel how he promised mercy through Abraham. She knew about the eternal promises to God in Genesis 12, where God says, through you, Abraham, well, all the families, all the people groups, all generations of earth will be blessed. In the book of Micah, chapter 7, verse 20, it says this, you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And the promises of God are culminating here in the birth of Christ, and Mary is aware of it. And there's a parallel passage in Matthew 1 as well, where it says that he, talking about Jesus, will save his people from their sins. It tells us the result right at the beginning. In spite of Israel's sinful state, 
the nation was still God's servant and God's purposes would come to pass. He would remember his mercy and his promises. And Mary knew and remembered the history of Israel and God's promises. Friends, we live in a, an age today where history is often forgotten, or worse, it's being rewritten to force in the current cultural thinking of the day. God's word has been maligned and attacked in this way as well. For those who would deconstruct the truth of God's word and build it back up according to their own idolatrous desires. But we would do well to know how God has worked through history, both in the Old Testament and through church history as well. And also, remembering your own personal history with the Lord is very important because we often forget that. But we're told over and over in God's word to remember, to remember what the Lord has done, to count your blessings in a sense, right? Count your blessings, name them one by one, count your blessings, see what God has done. Well, verse 56 tells us that Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then went back to her home. And she probably stayed right up until the point or even perhaps witnessed the birth of John the Baptist. Because when she went, Elizabeth was in her sixth month and she stayed for three. We don't know, of course. But then after that, she went to her own home. She was betrothed to Joseph, but their wedding had not been consummated yet. So she would have gone back to her childhood home. Well, this morning, we've seen that God is the source of blessing. We've seen that he is the source of our worship. And finally, I want to impress this thought as we come to a close today in how we're seeing the great example of Mary, how she faithfully repeated the sounding joy in her poem. The final thought is this. God is the source of our salvation, not us. And this is an overarching truth that we see in all of Scripture. We've seen it especially in our study of the book of Romans, but we see it here clearly in Luke as well. Right off the bat, Mary proclaims, My spirit rejoices in God my what? Savior. Yes. She knows that all of this is from God and not from her. That she is a sinner and she needs a Savior. It's pretty amazing because she's saying, God has looked at me and I'm nothing special, but he is blessing me. And after this, generations upon generations of people are going to note of how God has blessed this nobody. She was overwhelmed that God would use her for this. She knew she was a sinner. She knew it was mercy. It was God's holiness against her sinfulness that was the issue. She was blown away by that, that God would choose to work through her, amazed her. And it should amaze us. That God would stoop to our level and extend salvation to us is mind-blowing. And that's the kind of humility that makes for true worship. When you're overwhelmed with your sinfulness and you're knowledgeable about God's holiness and that he still calls you, as one of his children, that he still desires to sanctify you and to glorify you one day. That's humility. That's when you understand God is the source of our salvation, only him. And that's what we want you to know today. During the Christmas season, we have several obligations in our culture, don't we? We're obligated to buy gifts, sometimes for those that we don't really want to buy for, if we're honest. We're obligated to decorate our house. We're obligated to spend time with family. And there's an expectation to show Christmas spirit. You know, say hello to friends you know. 
and everyone you meet, right? You must be holly and jolly. The Christmas season comes with these expectations, even if there is trials and struggles, even if it's a, a very hard time. You must, in a sense, put on a show a little bit. But friends, the good news today is that God does not expect us to dress up our house or to dress up our life to come to him. We've said this so many times, that the only thing that we bring to our salvation, the only thing we bring to this relationship is our sin. It's the only thing we can bring. It's not, well, if you just sang happy birthday to Jesus a little bit louder, then that would really help. No, we have nothing to impress God with. And sometimes even with our sins, sometimes even with that, we try and cover it up and we say, well, you know, I haven't sinned as much as this person. But we can't, can't tie up our sin with some nice Christmas wrapping to try and hide it. We are dead in our sins until Christ saves us. But Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, you are, when you are weary, come to me and I will give you rest. So if you are here this morning and you have not repented of your sin, that means to be sorry for sin because it has offended a perfectly holy God, but not just to be sorry, to turn away from it, forsake it because it's displeasing to him. If you have not repented, if you're not trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, we would urge you to do it today. Please don't let another Christmas season go by. Don't Keep trying to hide your sin behind a false Christmas facade. Come to Christ today, and this season will take on a whole new meaning, and you will truly understand what it means to have tidings of comfort and joy, true comfort and true joy that only comes through Christ. Well, next week we're going to continue in chapter 1, and we're going to look at the birth of the forerunner, John the Baptist, and we're going to see that our lives must point, must always point to Christ and not ourselves. And just a final note on the life of Mary. After all of this, when Jesus ascended to heaven, completed his earthly ministry, after all this, Mary fades into history. The early church didn't exalt her. They did not put her up on a pedestal. She is mentioned one other time in the book of Acts during Pentecost, and that is it. It wasn't until the year 431 that the worship or veneration of Mary started and grew from there in a sense, in many areas, into a, what's called a Marian cult. She lived a life of humility and awe of her Savior. May we do the same. Amen? Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.